So I know I've mentioned a few times that Ashley and I really like, um, there's a few of the shows that we like that I confess to you, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of into uh, the reality shows, you know, a few of them. And so uh, there's one show that we really like to watch. It's called Restaurant Impossible. Has anybody ever seen this on Food Network? Food Network's about the only station Ashley will watch, so. But I kind of get into this thing. Restaurant Impossible is about this guy named Chef Robert. He's this big, beefed-up, muscular guy, but he's like an awesome chef. And uh, they take him around to different failing restaurants around the United States, like restaurants that are just a disaster. And this guy comes in, he's kind of like a drill sergeant, you know, and he comes in and literally overnight, I mean, it, it takes like a day, it's like 24 hours or something, he transforms the whole restaurant and then whenever he leaves, it's like thriving and packed and everything. And it's usually the same story whenever he comes to the restaurant. I mean, first off, the food's terrible. You could just bank on that. It's probably been microwaved and everything. But second of all, like, the service is awful. I mean, you you come in, and before, you kind of see the before picture, you know, and he's talking to customers, interviewing them. And usually these people, they're just, they could care less what their customer wants. And one of the things that he really harps on is he says, listen, It is all about the customer. The customer is always right. Service, service, service. I mean, this is what he preaches to them every time. And now, those are pretty basic rules of consumerism, right? I mean, just about everybody knows that. For some reason, people that go into business to run a restaurant don't get it. But anyways, we kind of know that because we're consumers. We live in a consumeristic culture. And so we get trained, as we go about and patronize different places, to expect a product. We, we get trained to expect to be served whenever we go to pay for something. And it's very deep in us, and sometimes you don't really notice that about yourself, how demanding we can be, till you go to a different culture. A couple of weeks ago, as you know, our, a team from Rock Creek went to Azerbaijan, and one of the things you notice right off is that there's some major cultural differences here. That's an understatement. But one of the places that you see it is whenever you go to patronize places, like a restaurant. And as you go in, all of a sudden you notice, am I invisible here? Where's the server? Nobody's come up. And then you notice after you finally ordered, the food comes in increments. So one person gets their food whenever it's done, and everybody sits around feeling awkward, if you're Americans. And then somebody else gets their food, and then 15 minutes later, somebody else gets their food. And if you're in a big group like us, sometimes we had 15 people, everybody's been done for an hour before the last person gets their food. And so you're sitting there, and you're starting to get frustrated, and you know, you're getting hot under the collar, and you're thinking, what is wrong with these people? I am here to be served. I expect some service here. We're almost trained to think like that in so many different areas. We go around asking, what kind of a return do I get for my money? That's just a good consumer practice, right? We expect a product. We expect to be served. And so often we carry this kind of mentality into all facets of life, sometimes subconsciously. And so often we bring the consumer mindset 
even into the church, even in the way that we do life together as the people of God. I mean, sometimes we in America, okay, I'll just go broad. I won't speak to us. Just generally in America, we treat the church kind of like a restaurant, right? You, you go to the restaurant and you expect a certain level of service and you expect to come and be fed by people, right? And if you're not being fed according to your expectation and the service is not there, well, then you'll just go to another restaurant out of the ten that you passed on the way there, right? So often, that is the reality for us as we do church together. And so even as we're in the church, we begin to ask, as we consider the things that we might participate in, we tend to think, what am I going to get out of that? Is this worth it for me? Uh, Why would I go to this community group? What am I going to get out of it? Or why should I go and volunteer or serve in this way? Or all those kind of things. Our almost immediate action is, what do I get out of this? Well, our passage and our parable this morning forms a wonderful corrective to consumers. It tends to kind of turn us upside down, or right side up, you might say. It reminds us that with God, we're not consumers. We're not the master. We're not the owner. In fact, He is the owner of all things. And everything belongs to Him. And the things that we have, they've been entrusted to us by Him. And life is about serving Him. We're servants. And that's what we'll see in our passage this morning. So as we come to look at our passage, it's helpful to note where we are in the book of Matthew. Now, the book of Matthew is arranged around five different discourses, they're called. That's like a little section of teaching where Jesus sits down and begins to teach. And so that's kind of how Matthew is arranging his gospel to kind of mirror Moses, who wrote the five books. So he's kind of saying, this guy Jesus is the greater Moses. So here we're in the fifth discourse. And this discourse, each one's kind of focused on something. This one is focused on kingdom judgment. And you can imagine why. Because Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he is about to be crucified by Israel. Now, this is an important thing. I mean, throughout this discourse, you can go home and read it. He says some of his hardest, most straightforward things in this particular discourse. He's speaking judgment over Israel, over what's happened. Because, you see, Israel had been, like a good steward, entrusted with all the good things of God. And then, with the coming of Jesus... They had been entrusted with the greatest gift of all, the Messiah. And soon, they would bury God's gift to them. And so Jesus has got some hard words here. But the words are also a warning for us. So we're going to look at it together and talk about what it means for us. Now, this summer we've been looking at parables. I think this will be our last week on parables. Uh, So let me kind of walk us through this parable here. So it starts off, and Jesus says, again, it will be like. And as we talked about last week, the parables are about the kingdom of God. And if you look at the previous parable, you get that. The parables are teachings about what is this kingdom like that Jesus is bringing. And Jesus says, the kingdom is like, well, it's like this man, this master, this 
owner of a great deal of property. And he's going to go along, uh, uh, he's going to go away on a long journey. And so he sits down and he takes all of his property and he entrusts it to servants. And it says, according to their ability, which is an important note here. You see, this master, he's wise. He knows different servants have different skills and aptitudes and abilities. And so he takes that into account. And so he gives them what he knows they can handle. And so to one servant, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two. Now, a talent, a talent was really a measure in this day. A talent was equal to about 75 pounds. And a lot of times, that's how they would measure wealth. And so if it was 75 pounds of gold, which it more than likely was, this was an enormous amount of wealth. This master was really wealthy, and he was entrusting a great deal to the servants. And so if it was 20 pounds, uh, 75 pounds of gold, then it would have been equal to 20 years' wages for a common day laborer. So this is an enormous amount of wealth. So he comes to one, he gives him five talents. That's a ton. He gives him five talents. To another, he gives two. To another, he gives one. And he tells them to go to invest it. And so then he sets off on a long journey, it says. Well, right off the bat, the servants get to work. The one with five takes what's been entrusted to him, invests it. He sees a return. He makes five more. Then the other servant, he takes his two, and he goes and he invests it. And what do you know? He makes a return. He makes two more. But then the third servant, for some odd reason, and this is meant to be a pretty stark contrast to the other ones, he takes what's entrusted to him, he goes out, he digs a hole, and he buries it. What is he doing? Well, no big deal to begin with. After a long time, it says... The master came back to meet with his servants and to close his accounts and see what they've done. So the man who had received five talents comes to him and he says, Master, you gave me five talents. I've invested them. I've earned five more. You notice what he says to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Wow, what a commendation there. Well, then he moves on to the one with two talents, and he comes up and he says, Master, you gave me two talents. I've invested them. Here's two more. And you notice what he says to him? The exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. How interesting. The master wasn't really all that interested in the sum total of what he was going to get. He was more after faithfulness. In fact, he says the same thing to the one that doubled five talents. I mean, he's got five talents. He says the same thing to him to the one that shows up with four. You see, it was faithfulness that he was after. So then he comes around to the third servant. And right off the bat, this is a very different conversation, you notice? The servant comes up, and immediately he accuses the master. Did you notice that? Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man. You like to harvest 
where you haven't sown. You like to gather in where you haven't scattered seed. I know what you're like. And so, I took what you gave me, I went and I buried it. So here's what's yours. So flip it. Do you see the reaction of the master here? You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I, don't, where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered. You knew that? Well then, why didn't you go invest it in the bank? If you knew this is what I do, I entrust to see a return, the least you could have done was deposited at the bank. I would have been happy with a 5% return. And then he says this, Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For everyone who has will be given more. And everyone who does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. And then these hard words, And throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, sometimes Jesus said some really hard things. In fact, he even talked about hell a great deal. And most of the time, those words were reserved for the self-righteous leaders of Israel who had oppressed God's people and led them astray. And that's the section that we find this in, in his pronouncing judgment on Israel. But they're also hard words for us to take to heart and to hear. So, what does this mean? What does the parable of the talents mean for us? Well, at first glance, you might think, wait a minute, is Jesus teaching works righteousness here? Is he teaching that we are accepted in the end based upon what we've done? And the short answer is, no, of course not. Think of the context here. In the very next chapters, Jesus will go to the cross. You see, that's what all of the Gospels hinge around. All of the New Testament hinges around this. Not our work, but his work. His work in hanging on a cross and bearing the sins of his people. That is how we're accepted. He's not contradicting his whole reason for coming. Instead, he's teaching about stewardship. He's teaching about discipleship, about the Christian life. Like, what, what, is it, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What, what are the responsibilities we're called to, those who belong to him? So it's not a picture of who will be accepted. It's a picture of the true heart and the fruit of a life of someone who truly belongs to him. So stewardship is kind of a word that's thrown around a lot in the church. You've probably heard this a great deal. And typically, whenever we hear the word stewardship, we think simply about money. So if we're going to do a series on stewardship, well, church is going to talk about money here. They want our money. must be behind on the budget or something. But stewardship is far more broad than just money. Stewardship refers to everything that God has entrusted to you. Tim Keller's got a very helpful definition of what a steward is. He said, a steward is a person who has been entrusted with the resources of another and seeks to invest those resources according to the vision and values of the owner. You get that? A steward is managing things that don't belong to him. 
A steward is someone who's been put over something that belongs to somebody else, and he's managing it and stewarding it and investing it in such a way that it will bring a return for the owner. That's the real picture of stewardship. And if that's your picture of stewardship, really, it's a picture of what humans are to be. If you think about the creation account, you know, way back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the whole world, and then he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he puts them right in the middle of his creation, and he said, all right, all of this, it belongs to me. I'm the owner, but I entrust it to you. So what I want you to do is I want you to fill the whole earth, and I want you to cultivate it, to care for it, to invest in it, to bring down my good, beautiful, life-giving rule to the earth. The purpose of being human, the whole reason we were made, is to be wise stewards of creation. And so that's the picture. And so how is this parable, in particular, a picture of our stewardship? Well, just like in the parable, just as the master goes away on a long journey, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And the next day, he will be crucified. He will be buried. He will be raised to life. He'll spend a short time with them, and then he will leave. Just like the master in the parable for a very long time. I mean, he's been gone for some time now, right? And whenever he left, he entrusted things to his disciples. He gave them gifts and talents and abilities. And really, talents here refers to more than just money. It refers to all of the different things that belong to God that he has entrusted to us. It's been summed up before in the three time, talent, and treasure. You ever heard that before? It's helpful. It's a helpful summary. See, the fact is, all of time belongs to him. But yet, he's entrusted some to us. You know, he's, he's entrusted a certain amount of hours in the day. He's entrusted a certain amount of years in your life. He's entrusted to each of us a certain number of opportunities in our life. It belongs to him. But yet, he's entrusted it to us that we would manage it well, that we would invest it well, our time, so that it would bring him a return. In the same way, talents or gifts, abilities, spiritual gifts, uh, skills, aptitudes, all of these different things that he says he gives to the church. And each one of us have been given a different set of gifts, different kinds of abilities, different things that we can do, that we understand, so that we would use those things to build one another up, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. So that we would invest those things in order to build his kingdom. That's the point. And then finally, treasure. God has entrusted to us money and property and things and houses. and Sure, some more than others, right? But nonetheless, what he's given to you is what you can handle. And it's designed for you. And we are to take all of those things and invest them according to his vision and his values in the world so that he'll see a return. And so that's what he expects, for us to take all those things that belong to him and invest them. 
But the parable also shows us that one day the master will come back. Just like the master here. He'll come back and we'll meet him face to face and we'll give an account. You know, we'll say, hey, you gave me these talents. Here's what I've done with it. And those, those stewards who have stewarded well, who have been faithful in investing their things for the sake of the kingdom, we will receive much more in the world to come. The entire New Testament says whenever Jesus comes back and renews all things in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with him. And so in this life, we get a few things to take care of and to invest. In the world to come, we will reign with him and steward a great deal. But then also, for those servants who are unwilling to invest what he has given to them and instead bury it and hoard it and spend it on themselves, even what they have will be taken and given to those who have stewarded well. And those servants will find no place in his kingdom. They will be cast out of his kingdom. These are some hard words to look at. And this parable is to be, it's an invitation to take a look at our lives and to say, how am I as a steward? How am I doing? What has God entrusted to me and how am I using those things according to his vision and his values? I want to kind of highlight three points of how I think this specifically applies to us, Rock Creek Fellowship. The first one is this, from the parable. Everything we have belongs to the master. That's really the key of stewardship. If you can understand that everything that I have belongs to God, then you are, you're well on your way to being a good steward. We've got to understand that everything we have, our job, our breath, our life, our money, our houses, our cars, our children, our futures, every single thing that we have, it belongs to Him. And He has entrusted it to us. But He's the owner of it, of all of it. A couple years ago, I was so inspired by a couple in our church. I won't mention their name. They wouldn't want me to. But we had some missionaries coming into town and they needed a car to drive around while they were in town. And so we were trying to get the word out. And this couple came to me and they said, Hey, we want them to use our car. Now this couple, they have two cars, but they need both of them. Their particular situation, they need both cars each and every day, or it was going to be an incredible inconvenience, just their situation. And so I tried to talk them out of it. I said, No, don't, keep your car. Somebody else can take care of this. And they said to me, no, you don't understand. This isn't our car. It's the Lord's car. And so, if he wants us to loan it out to somebody, we're going to do it because it's not our car. And I said, okay, I got it. You got it. You have your, your, you're right on. You see, if we can get over the problem of ownership, we are well on our way to stewardship. See, that's the problem of our holding on to our stuff and our time and our inability to give ourselves and to volunteer and to participate. At the core, we think our time is our own. We think our money is our own. But whenever you realize it all belongs to Him, 
Well, it frees you up to let go of things. So that's the first point. Everything belongs to the master. Here's the second point. He expects us to invest what he has given to us for the sake of his kingdom. Everything that he's given to us, all the gifts, the time, the treasure, everything that we have, he's given it to us so that we might invest it according to his purposes. It doesn't mean you're always giving things away and you can't enjoy things. The thing about this benevolent, kind master is he wants you to actually enjoy the things that he's given to you. He wants you to celebrate it. But he doesn't want you to think that you own it or that it's only for you. Instead, he wants us to use it. Use all of the things that he's given you. Your money, your influence, your gifts, your talents. Use them to leverage for the sake of the kingdom and for the benefit of others. The thing about the third servant that we see here, he is rebuked not because his investments aren't good, not because he goes out and he gives it a shot and it doesn't go so well. I have a pretty good idea the master in the parable would have been just as pleased with the effort. He's rebuked because of his pure apathy. He takes what was entrusted to him and he just buries it. He just puts it away. He doesn't even lift a finger for it. This picture leads us to ask a hard question, to take stock in our life and to say, am I bearing his gifts to me? Am I taking my stuff, my life, my time, my children, my money, am I taking all of those things and using them for me alone in my little kingdom? It begs that we ask a very hard question. Now, you might have noticed something about Rock Creek. We talk a lot about money. This might actually drive you crazy, but it's for a good purpose. It is not because we want your money. We don't. We really believe God will resource this church for what we need to do. We don't want your money. What we want is your hearts. We want you to be engaged. We want your relationship with the Lord to be one of willing servant. We want everyone to participate. We don't want you to see the things that are yours as yours. Because that's not a healthy thing. In fact, it's a dangerous thing. See, the reality is in Christ's church, there are no spectators. This is not a spectator church. None of them are. You cannot cruise. You cannot treat the church like a restaurant. You can't come and eat and then leave and come back whenever you're hungry again. The church is described as being a family. And you know what families are like. Everybody's got chores, right? Everybody's got a part to play. And if somebody in the family doesn't play their part, everybody suffers. You cannot cruise. If anything, this parable is a warning against cruising. There's a third thing for us to see. First, everything belongs to the master. Second, he expects us to invest for his kingdom. Thirdly, this, it's crucial to know the master. Maybe this third servant has really caught your attention in this parable, and that's kind of the point. 
But you see, there's a problem in this third servant that goes much deeper than just his failure to steward what was given to him. You see, it was not just his choices that were the problem. It was a heart problem. You notice that right whenever the master comes to him. He says, I knew you were a harsh man. You see, he's made a tragic mistake. He has made an assumption about the master that he is harsh, that he is unkind, that he is unwilling and not generous. He's made that assumption, and that fundamental assumption has separated him from his master. And it's led him to do all of these crazy things like bury it. It's because he did not know the master. He had missed the generosity of his master. He had missed the grace of the master. You see, the, the master in this picture is gracious. I mean, he, he doesn't give to anyone what they can't handle. And he is pleased just with faithfulness, just with giving it a shot. And in fact, he tells the servant here, if you just would have invested it, I would have been pleased. And he missed it. He didn't know the master's grace. Some of us this morning think that the master, that God, is harsh. Sometimes this can be my tendency to think this, to think he is a taskmaster, to think he's a slave driver, to think he's always riding me, always demanding more. I can never please him. Let me tell you something. That is a lie. That is Satan's lie throughout the scriptures. Ever since the very beginning with Adam and Eve, he wants to convince he is harsh. He's unloving. He wants to ride you. But it's just not true. He is pleased with the smallest return, with the smallest effort. He's pleased with the heart. He is not harsh. He's not a taskmaster. He is incredibly, incredibly full of grace. Now, this parable is meant to warn us, to really ask us to take an honest look at our life. But it's not meant to make us doubt and to fear. I know some of us, we read this passage and we think, Oh, no, that's me. The third servant is me. And if you're thinking that, you're probably not the third servant. The problem with the third servant is he didn't think any of those things at all. He didn't think there was anything wrong. So if you're prone to tenderness of conscience, he's not speaking to you. And you've got to take the context into account in this. You see, because right after these words, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be betrayed by one of his own disciples, one whose foot he washed. And he'll be betrayed by his own people He'll be mocked, spit upon, condemned to death like a criminal. He'll be hung on a cross and buried by Israel, the people he came to. You see, the reality is the perfect servant was cast into the darkness for us. He was the perfect servant. He perfectly stewarded everything that God had entrusted to him perfectly according to the vision and the values of the Father. He was perfect, but yet he was treated like a wicked servant so that people like me 
in people like you that, let's face it, are quite often a mess and who make a mess of the things entrusted to us so that people like us might hear the Master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the Master's happiness. He says that to us because of the substitution of Christ, the perfect servant. This table is a picture of that. The Lord's table that we come to this morning is not a table to come to and to be inspected because another was inspected for you and found to be perfect. This is a table where we come to find grace. In all the ways that we've made a mess, it's at this table with the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood that it reminds us, you're free, you're accepted because of His work on your behalf. But it's also a table where we encounter the Holy Spirit and He promises to strengthen us, to grow us, to change us so that we might grow as stewards. That's what He wants. He doesn't want to just accept us and forgive us where we are. He also wants to change us so that we would flourish as wise stewards of creation.